Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. A number of guests on my show have talked about tasting alcohol early in life when they were just toddlers or young children. My guest on today's show, Tesca M., experienced that and more as the daughter of a bar owner in Louisiana. Her days as a child playing behind the bar included having her Coca-Cola spiked with whiskey by her father on a regular basis. But though her family was rife with alcoholism within a Louisiana culture where drinking was a way of life, Tesca lived most of her life as a normal or social drinker. It wasn't until she retired after a long and successful career as a lawyer that alcoholism bit into her life with ferocity. Tesca's self-admitted workaholism kept her use of alcohol and occasional binges confined to weekends throughout her legal career. But as she retired in her 50s, alcoholism took over with vengeance where her work addictions had left off. Like the man in the big book who retired to his carpet slippers, bathrobe, and irrepressible drinking, Tesca headed down the same road to ruin. But, unlike the man in the story, she didn't have to die to stop drinking. Instead, she came to AA. Sober in AA for nearly five years now, Tesca's journey in sobriety is a tale worth hearing. Finding AA in her early 60s, centering herself in the program and the 12 steps, has enriched her quality of life. She clearly embodies what a woman transformed by Alcoholics Anonymous can be, irrespective of age. Her hopefulness for a happy and service-oriented future as a member of AA comes through loud and clear. On this episode of AA Recovery Interviews, I'm delighted to welcome my AA sister, Tesca M. Hi, I'm Tesca, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Tesca. It's really terrific to have you <laughs> being on today. So you and I have known each other for, what, the past couple of years, I guess it is? That'd be about right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you've been sober how long now? It's coming up on five years. It'll be five years, July 1st of uh, 2016. And was that the, the first time that you had ever tried to get sober? Yes, in earnest. Uh, there mm -hmm. had been brief periods uh, before that I had uh, stopped or had tried, had, had stopped drinking, but not really going all in, mm -hmm. uh, not really through any kind of recovery program or 12-step program, just on my own thought, let me just sort of, you know, give this a bit of a respite. Right. I think all of us tried to do that at some point or another. I know I did. Whenever I stopped, I always knew I was going to start again, though. That's the kind of crazy part. Yeah. When I came into AA, I had no idea what the next step was going to be or whether I would actually have to drink again. The times that you tried on your own and started drinking again, what happened when, when that occurred? Yeah, it was a personal will. It was sort of to, just to see if I could do it, to see mm -hmm. what it would be like. But mm -hmm. it was a very thin sort of like experience for me compared to what being in a recovery program has been like. Right. And again, I never, as you said, I, I sort of saw an end to that period of sobriety. I, I knew that I would not stay stopped. That wasn't the objective. The objective mm -hmm. was just to see what it would be like not to drink for a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I felt deprived. Deprived of? Alcohol. That was, you know, all that my awareness allowed me at that time. Just mm -hmm. I was deprived of alcohol. I didn't realize how much more I was deprived of until I learned more by being um, in the program. Amongst the different people in the program who I've interviewed for this uh, podcast, a number of them got sober quite young and been sober a long time. Others waited until they were considerably older and then got sober. Um, five years ago, what was going on in your life that made you decide you wanted to finally get sober and come to AA? Five years ago, you know, it wasn't really a, a particular event or a milestone, but just prior to that, some big things had happened. Mm -hmm. I had chosen to go into early retirement. Mm -hmm. I had ended a relationship that I had mm -hmm. been in for almost 30 years. And wow. so those are, mm -hmm. you know, really big uh, life events. 
And then I, so I found myself in a period where uh, my drinking, because I had the time um, and Mm -hmm. because I just, because alcohol is alcohol, it it just really began to overtake so much of my existence. Mm. And, and I became aware of that and I just was miserable. I just made myself absolutely miserable and thought, I've, I've got to look into something to do about this. This is not making me happy uh, Mm -hmm. in the long term. And uh, mm. and that's when I found my way into the rooms for the first time ever. Interesting. So prior to that time, would you have been what you would have considered a normal drinker or a heavy drinker? Probably, n- now that I know a little more about drinking, I probably was a, a binge drinker. I've always been around alcoholism. It's rife in my family. Really? Uh-huh. And so I knew what it looked like. From my perspective, uh, mm-hmm. I just lacked that, you know, that perspective of, oh, my gosh, and, and, and it's me. Sure. Uh, once I got beyond uh, the career stage of my life and other issues, I, I, that's when I just took that, you know, good, hard look at what was happening. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that your family was rife with alcohol. Uh, what do you remember about your early life and your home life as relates to the path that you would eventually embark upon? Oh, well, that, you know, very painfully, Howard, that, you know, my mom was the one who was really the central figure uh, as the alcoholic in the family. Mm-hmm. It was most mm-hmm. obvious. Her behavior was most obvious. And, mm-hmm. and her demons really, really got her. This was back in the 60s, and so it, it mm-hmm. went against so many norms at the time of what, you know, you would think your mom and you would want your mom to be like and act mm-hmm. like and so mm-hmm. on. And I think that was a part of how I sort of deluded or was deluded in my in my own alcoholism that uh, I thought, well, I, you know, I don't believe I'm alcoholic because that's not what I looked like. That's not mm-hmm. what my disease was like. Mm-hmm. I would admit to perhaps having alcohol problems or alcohol issues, uh, sure. but not really wigging on to the fact that, oh, yes, absolutely, I am alcoholic. So primarily my mother. But again, mm-hmm. now as I look around it, I realize that also in, in their drinking habits and, and in their behavior, uh, my mm-hmm. father. And then now through my entire life, I look across my family and, and just almost to a person. And I'm, I'm not mm. saying that in terms of being any kind of, uh, of being judgmental in any way, but, mm-hmm. um, so, so, so many of us. In fact, I just a couple of weeks ago attended a memorial service for a nephew of mine whose mm-hmm. underlying uh, disease was alcoholism and, and then. Sad. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, I recently lost a a nephew to cirrhosis. And what part of that was played by his drinking? He was a relatively young man, too. We will probably never know. But how did the alcohol and alcoholism in your early family manifest itself? Oh, well, it was it was really very messy. Yeah. For me, as a, as a child, mm-hmm. it was very shameful. It, it brought mm-hmm. about a lot of calls by uh, community social services. I grew up in a very, mm-hmm. very small, small town in Louisiana. So th- mm-hmm. there were not many of those resources. Sure. And my parents had divorced when I was five. So five. my mom was, you know, today, in today's verbiage, we'd say single mom. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the time, she was a divorcee. So it was, uh, yeah, it, I would say my home life was, uh, very, could be very volatile, very, very unpredictable, uh, and all around whether or not my mom had been drinking that day. Hmm. Hmm. So do you have siblings? I do, and yet uh, I have half-siblings, and my uh-huh. older sister was 10 years older than I. Around the time that I was 7 or 8, mm-hmm. she was mm-hmm. leaving home and, and going away. So much of this experience with my mom and growing up was uh, was just that, just with my mom. Hmm. In a five- to eight-year-old's mind, can you recall what you were thinking to yourself at the time when you were uh, uh, just a child about what was going on with your mother well, I was bewildered. It was a, from the outside, it was a very shameful experience because there were mm. many public sort of events, um, that okay. transpired. But it was at home alone, I, 
you know, it was a, it was sort of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. When my mom was sober, when my mom was not drinking, she was a loving, yes. wonderful, caring, compassionate, a wonderful mom. But her demons, uh, you know, were just uh, there after her over and over again. And so my clearest memory is a lot about when I came home from school in the afternoon. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, would she mm-hmm. be drinking or not? Was she what you would consider a binge drinker then? I don't know that it was binging. I mean, it, it seemed mm-hmm. to be, it didn't seem to have a particular pattern. Uh, hmm. sure. I'm not quite sure what triggered my mom. I, I didn't mm-hmm. really have an awareness at that time. She, I know she was lonely, um, and I know she felt uh, just very isolated in that very, very small town in Louisiana where my where, where she was not from. Mm-hmm. But my father was there, his family was mm-hmm. there, and uh, and she was there doing her best, as she always said, to uh, to raise me and to, you know, get along with her life. That must have made it really tough, huh? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So children carry that shame from their homes along with them into school, and whatever the prevailing attitude is about a particular family is often expressed in the way children treat each other. Mm-hmm. What do you recall from your early school experience that affected you by virtue of your mother's drinking? School was really my escape. I really, really, it, it was everything. It was everything for mm-hmm. me. And my mm-hmm. focusing there, my my uh, being able to um, excel, to achieve to mm-hmm. um i was always i was a good student and uh mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i enjoyed being a good student and that's really kind of where i found myself it was my mom who in her good days really focused and steered me uh, on that path. Uh, I mm. remember her putting a dictionary in front of me and mm. having <laughs> me sit there and trace out letters and and so on. And so it was, I started, gosh, had to be four or five. I just remember that. Oh, that's amazing. A four or five-year-old sitting down with a dictionary. You must have gotten pretty smart pretty quick. Well, huh? <laughs> I don't know about that, but words <laughs> are everything to me. Numbers, yeah. not so much. My dad used to do something with the dictionary with me. Whenever I would ask him as a little kid how to spell a word, he'd always say, go look it up, go yeah. look it up, go look it up. He would never tell me. These days, you'd say, check Google, or right. you'd check it yourself and give the kid the definition or tell them how to spell it. My dad always said, go look it up. And we had this giant dictionary, you know, the kind that were about a foot thick. Mm-hmm. And uh, But one of the interesting things I found in later life was I could look up a word faster than anybody I knew. Yeah. I could find a word in the dictionary in about five seconds, irrespective of how it was spelled or the letters involved. And at the time, I felt punished by that. Yeah. Why won't you t- Why won't you tell me the definition? Mm-hmm. Go look it up. I don't know if he consciously was doing that because he didn't want to tell me or because he was trying to train me to use the dictionary. I don't know. Isn't that interesting? And I could see how you would feel, you know, feel punished. You know, we, we had to have uh, a set of encyclopedias. and But she, she took it a bit to the extreme, I guess, that she encouraged me to use the encyclopedia sure. for, you know, what, what did we have to do, reports and things in school. Uh-huh. But she yeah. uh, she also allowed me to cut out pieces of the encyclopedia of the oh, book. no. The, p- so the pages themselves? The pages themselves, <laughs> oh, no. yes. And put them into my, <laughs> paste them into my reports. And I thought, there's something oh, not quite goodness. right about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what were your first experiences like with alcohol? When did you first drink and, and what kind of consequences occurred? Well, uh, Howard, it goes it goes so, so, so far back. Um, mm-hmm. My father owned a bar and mm. a restaurant and mm-hmm. a motel. Uh, and mm. the, the three were all right there together in this one little neighborhood. And, mm-hmm. you know, one business kind of served another business, served another business. And mm-hmm. our house was not far from there. So I would go over there to play. You know, it was always active during the daytime. And so I would either be back in the kitchen and the restaurant uh, mm-hmm. with some of the folks there or uh, or even in the bar before it opened in the afternoon. And Mm. it was not unusual for me to go back behind the bar and avail myself of some of the treats, you know, maraschino cherries and all that kind of stuff that Mm -hmm. that were back there. But my Mm -hmm. dad would, if there were afternoons when I was just a little rambunctious, my father would put a little bit of whiskey in my Coca-Cola to settle me down. 
And huh. um, I just, I remember that. And he was proud of it. He thought that, you know, I'm just one of the best child care people. I, I'm the babysitter. Did you know that at the time or is that something you found out later? I don't think I knew it at the time, but I was told mm-hmm. after that. I was mm-hmm. more focused on the snacks and <laughs> and the pinball yeah. machine and some of the other things that I was able to do. But it was a fun place to play as a kid, you know, mm-hmm. it's not certainly not appropriate, but looking yeah. back on it. But it's that is what it was then. Hmm. And and I also hmm. wonder, maybe if I wasn't predisposed because of my mom's drinking, uh, you know, maybe even in utero. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. the science, but I, I, as mm-hmm. I said, it's alcohol's been all around me for since I can really first remember. Hmm. Interesting. So when was the first time then that you took a drink uh, on your own accord or... There's not a first time that stood out. It, it was ubiquitous. And it was as though, you know, there's there's this expression that we have that in Louisiana, the law is for mm-hmm. the tourists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it didn't matter. It just didn't seem to matter that you had to be a certain age to drink. Everybody drank. Every family drank. And yeah. so it, it was odd if you didn't. You were really sort of labeled if you didn't. I'm, I'm conscious of drinking in high school. It, yeah. it was a big activity. So, was and mm-hmm. I had little, little bitty dates. I remember at 14. And I think drinking was, yeah, drinking was just a given. Yeah. In fact, uh, what you're saying is in concurrence with some of my other guests from Louisiana, like George and Judy and some of the others that talk about the culture of drinking, even for children. When you were drinking in high school, what were you feeling when you were drinking? Were you drinking to fit in, to isolate, to blot out? What did you see drinking doing for you at that time? A lot of it was fitting in. What made me a little different from others was my parents were divorced. Right. And so that was, you know, that was always with me. And, and so there was always something about that that was, mm-hmm. it was sort of a, a, a basis of some shame for me. Sure. So as I was wanting to make friends, I wanted to do what everybody did. And, uh, yeah. and we all did. And my dad was a purveyor of, of this good stuff. And so mm-hmm. even though we wouldn't and couldn't walk right into the front door of his establishment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew where the, so- where the source was. So wow. I could always get, you know, I, I had access to any and everything that we would have wanted. Um, mm-hmm. Just that simple. So you were the supplier of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about it like that, but yeah, I guess I was goodness. because it was the, well, if we can't get it, you know, it was usually from, you know, somebody's house, you know, my mom has this or my dad has that or whatever. And if we couldn't get it one place, we'd get it in another. And I was always kind of the, the fail safe, you know, we know that I've got it, so... You know, you may be my first guest who was ever raised in a bar, uh, which is interesting. What effect did drinking with your friends have on you, let's say physically? Did you black out? Did you get sick? Were you just fine with it? Uh, Were you the life of the party or did you isolate? No, certainly didn't isolate. Uh, No, it was a social thing and we Uh had fun. And I'm not aware of ever blacking out at that age. I'm not aware actually of even over drinking that much. Some, but not that much. Really? I kind of kept my wits about me. And I, maybe somehow that was tempered by the uh-huh. fact that I never knew exactly what my mom was doing. Uh, so I felt, well, somebody has to stay, okay. uh-huh. you know, alert and with it and, and, and be the adult in the room. And so I did it mm-hmm. for fun. Mm-hmm. We all did it for fun. Yeah. What was the path beyond high school and how did that lead into the rest of your early drinking? The path beyond high school was was college and and again college undergraduate in Louisiana mm-hmm. so that is still the culture was very much the same I was in South Louisiana drinking a lot drinking. of drinking uh, you mm-hmm. know we had mm-hmm. I don't know if some of your other Louisiana mm-hmm. guests have told you about hurricane parties but uh, but when you know most people mm-hmm. when a hurricane is coming toward the coast uh, you know we batten down the hatches and 
protect uh, ourselves and others. Yeah. Well, certainly in college in the 70s um, uh, in Louisiana, it was an excuse mm-hmm. to have a big party. Mm-hmm. And so as the hurricane neared, uh, mm. people would just would look for, you know, whatever their greatest source of alcohol was and lump up in someone's apartment somewhere or dorm room or whatever and, um, and mm. have a big hurricane party. So there was that. So it was around. Mm. There was a mm-hmm. lot of it. There it seemed mm-hmm. that getting drunk that's that's uh-huh. an occurrence that i can remember more the blackouts no mm-hmm. but but mm-hmm. getting drunk then yeah what did you do after college i graduated then actually came to texas that's when i moved to houston mm-hmm. my undergraduate degree was in microbiology and so i came mm-hmm. to work in the medical center and then i prevailed upon uh-huh. my dad i was interested in going to law school and he agreed finally and so uh-huh. came to law school here in Texas and then and life proceeded and made friends and all, all along that way there were friends being made hmm. and there were drinks being had and drinking and socializing you know was always a part of the equation so you would have considered yourself just an everyday normal mm-hmm. drinker I would have at at that point yeah. When did you first notice that you were moving from being a normal drinker to perhaps being a heavy drinker to maybe having a problem with drinking? The first awareness of it was maybe on in my 30s. Really? Uh, Yeah, because I remember thinking, well, I've, you know, I might have some alcohol issues or alcohol, an alcohol problem. Uh, But I Mm -hmm. surrounded myself with people who drank heavily. And so, to my mind, yeah. we, we all did, and, and perhaps we all did, um, but mm-hmm. I had normalized mm-hmm. all of that drinking, and that's where I was, but probably mid, mid-30s or so. So you were a functional drinker at that point, maybe not a functional alcoholic just yet. So you went into a field in which we have an awful lot of representatives in the program. It always seems like there are a lot of lawyers. Why is that? Oh, I don't think I could answer for anybody else. I don't. I don't think I could. <laughs> How about for yourself and the people who you knew in the field? <laughs> oh boy. Well, in some, I'll tell you this. This lawyer was a was a tortured uh, a tortured soul, and uh, I think yeah, you know there were so yeah. many things I was struggling with and dealing with and and trying to prove uh, to myself. Mm-hmm. And and for me, I think that I was so focused on the intellectual aspects of things and not dealing with mm. the emotional aspects, the feeling aspects, and the, you know, the things that we know that are really so meaningful in our lives. And so being compartmentalized mm. up in my head, you know, I, that's all I thought that mattered. Yeah. Was the drinking a pathway into relieving yourself of having to be intellectual all the time? Or was it the need that you had to experience some sort of emotional release that alcohol served for you? It was both. I was thinking this morning before we talked about the difference between objective and subjective. And I used to pride myself in being so objective. I mean, that's one of the strengths of an attorney. Uh, But I just lived in that objectivity. You know, my my feelings were so numb um, and and still are. I'm still working on plumbing the depths of what it really is like to really feel something, to allow myself to be there. Sure. There's a lot of work to do around that, isn't there? And at five years, if you've if you've begun that and have gotten well into it, that says a lot about the quality and strength of your program. So I think that's actually a, quite a good thing. When you were in your early 30s and you started to notice that you were drinking more, maybe you were drinking problematically, what was your personal response to that? Did you try and change it immediately or tone down? Every effort was just sort of short-lived. It was kind of that game that we play with ourselves of, okay, well, you know, this was mm-hmm. a bad Friday night or a bad Saturday night. And by bad, I just mean that I had gotten drunk and, uh, you know, was hung over the next day. And uh, mm-hmm. many of my weekends, as I got, as I, as my disease progressed, many of my weekends were spent with one night of the weekend being a go-out night with friends and and, um, and mm-hmm. dinner and so on and, and heavy, heavy drinking. Um, sure. And then the rest of the weekend, I was in my robe just recovering. So after those types of experiences, I would tell myself, okay, well, this, you know, not, not tonight, not so much, only one, only mm-hmm. two, only, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But never, never became anything that was really, mm-hmm. that was fruitful. Yeah. 
You mentioned earlier that you were what we, what you would consider is a binge drinker, and now you're mentioning the weekends. Did you not drink during the week? No, I really didn't. It's interesting, and I, but I, mm-hmm. it's funny how I didn't even have an awareness of it. It was my path. I didn't want it. Sure. I didn't crave it during the week. I, I, my work, I was so, of course, I was work addicted, uh, which is another reason why I think there's so many of us lawyers are in the program is that we have, we have several addictions and, and work is one of them. And of course, a career like that, like so many careers, just will take as much of you as you will give. I never, even until my early fifties, which is when I retired, never drank during the week. I couldn't and I, and and do my Mm. job. Uh, and mm. didn't. Mm. But come Friday, <laughs> uh, that's when the ice hit the glass and, and it was all systems go. So it sounds like you had a realization relatively early on about the trouble that alcohol could cause for you if you decided to drink during the week. And so you reserved it just for the weekends. Right. And how long did you do that for? Decades. Yeah, the bu- probably the bulk of my career. When did you start to see problems occurring that were directly linked to your drinking? Because I was able to maintain this functionality, it was hard to see the the backside. It was hard to see the oh, yeah. the, the troubles that were there. As I aged, I became more aware mm-hmm. and I, I thought, oh boy, is this going to catch up with me at some point? I fortunately, and you know, I guess I'm in that not yet category. I never had a DUI episode and never been pulled over. None of that ever happened, fortunately. Could have on many mm-hmm. occasions, could have. And, and maybe saying that, I'm, I'm thinking, boy, there were some nights I remember going home from some dinner parties and thinking, oof. And that's the blackout when the blackout started. Don't even really remember how I got home. And, uh, you know, realizing mm-hmm. I shouldn't, shouldn't be driving. That's a horrible feeling, yeah. isn't it? When you wake up the next morning, you can't remember driving home the night before. Absolutely. And hearing some of those other friends I'm socializing with who were pulled over, who did suffer consequences and thinking, boy, I got by by the skin of my teeth. Don't know how I did, but I yeah. did. So you were blessed with not having to suffer the consequences of DUIs and public intoxication and and getting into fights and other things. Looking back, when would you say you first became or could be considered a functional alcoholic? All my life. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I get it. It just was so incorporated into my being. It was just a part of living. And I. I worked it in where I worked it in, but that pocket of time, whether that was weekend or or whenever, it slowly mm-hmm. and surely began to kind of seep, you know, beyond those boundaries and, and into other aspects of my life. I, I do remember, Howard, my, my first job as a lawyer, I had a performance mm-hmm. evaluation on a must have been on a Monday. I had that evaluation. The evaluation was great. Everything was good. And I remember having to get up so quickly so that I could go down the hall to throw up because I was still a little mm. hungover from the night before. Maybe a sign of things to come? Yeah, I think so. You know, I asked that question kind of knowing that it's often difficult to find the line of demarcation between heavy drinking, social drinking, and alcoholic drinking. Mm -hmm. And so many of the people I've interviewed and so many of the people I've known during my sobriety, one of the things that made it hardest to quit was the fact that they had functioned so long in their jobs and they'd been able to keep their jobs to the extent that had they not, they would have gotten to AA sooner. Do you think you would have gotten to AA sooner if you had not had work as the other addiction? Probably so, because I think the work gave me, you know, the the work was so much of my identity at the time. I had so much ego tied up in Uh it, and it was was my purpose, just as school had been my purpose and my, the the Mm -hmm. sort of the meaning uh, of my life Mm -hmm. at that time. Um, then, mm-hmm. then work took on that importance. And in a way, I mean, even though it was addictive and harmful in its own ways, yeah. that addiction save, saved me to some extent. Uh, I can't say it saved me from alcoholism because I do think I was alcoholic, but it slowed the progression. It just sort of kept it in one, you know, kept it in that one phase, kind of in that, in that binging. Mm-hmm. Until when I retired, I traded, you know, the one big addiction 
I think, for another big addiction. So you're like that person in the big book that we've all read about who leads a pretty ordinary life, even though alcohol might have been a part of it, and then they retire and they pull out their carpet slippers and their robe. And tell me about that period after you retired. And you you mentioned that there was some kind of transition between, let's say, the workaholism and the alcoholism. Can you go into that a little bit? I just really used the alcohol to fill so many voids. Uh, Of course, not aware of it at the time. I didn't even Mm -hmm. realize after, of course, you know, you come to more and more and more awareness as we continue on in the program. But until my sponsor pointed it out to me, and I had read that story, but I didn't identify, didn't identify with it. I thought, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. The carpet slippers. But yes, looking back on it now, it is so much like that. And and what happened was that Mm -hmm. I had a lot more time available. Uh, My friends were also Mm -hmm. retirees or people who were not working for whatever reason, and they they had time. There was a lot of travel. There was there was a lot of celebratory, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, we've got this phase of our lives kind of behind us now and we can kick back. And we Mm -hmm. can. We simply Mm -hmm. can. And so if you sure uh, you never drank during the week. But now if you want to go to lunch, go to lunch. And if you want to have a glass of wine, then you just have that glass of wine. And then that one glass of wine became, you know, however Mm. many. What it devolved into was not so much the wine at lunch, but what happened there between the five and six o'clock hours and that big old bottle of vodka. And it was Mm. vodka with a mixer of some sort. And then it just became vodka and then vodka over vodka. And it just was never enough and definitely blacking out. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. The Big Book podcast is read by Howard L., who receives no compensation for this vital service work. The Big Book Podcast is an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories. Listen to all 85 episodes anytime, anyplace. Search for Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So when you were getting ready to retire, did the alcoholism enter into any of the decision-making to retire at that point, or you just went from retiring to taking the binges into an everyday type of thing? Yes, and it didn't seem to happen overnight, but it also didn't take too very long either. I I didn't know, and there Mm -hmm. were people who knew me, and even I would have thought at first, I thought, I'm not so sure how I feel about this retirement stuff, because I had just plunged so much of myself Mm -hmm. into it. But I didn't. um, Oh, yeah. I really took to retirement. I I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't that happy if I'd been joyful. Um, You know, I wouldn't have uh, Uh wouldn't have uh, drunk as much as I did. That's my awareness of the progression of the disease, just how it can can just eat you alive if you let it. And so it had been contained. You know, that I think that was it in a way. It had sort of been contained, not managed. I mean, I wasn't aware enough to say I was managing my drinking, but it it was sort of contained by that overarching arching work addiction until you took that away and yeah. then the the alcohol yeah. you know just it, it mushroomed yeah my guess is too that the accountabilities changed once you were uh, you know you right. didn't have to worry about clients right. or colleagues or pleasing anybody or anything just able to drink when you wanted to with the vodka that was going on from the time you retired until you actually came into AA when did you start to notice the wheels getting loose and about ready to fall off how far out from your actual sobriety date did that occur probably Within a year, it was because I could. And so there was a lot of open time. There were a lot of friends. And I placed myself in situations where alcohol was such a part of the culture. I had a a home in Mm -hmm. San Miguel de Allende. And there are kind of two groups of folks there. Mm -hmm. There are the folks who drink a lot and then the folks who don't drink at all. And I, of course, was a part Mm -hmm. of the folks who drank a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah. So much and so often. And so I, you know, I was a part of that group of people. 
Um, and then I came back to Houston and I was mm-hmm. a Again, a, a part of groups of friends who who drank. So where where it started sort of coming apart for me was those gallons of vodka that seemed to just be right there and shadow me mm-hmm. as I would find a comfortable chair in the afternoon and settle in because I realized, mm-hmm. okay, there, I'm not going out to dinner. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to put mm-hmm. myself in any danger, but I am going to sit here and have this drink. And then another drink, and then another drink, mm, and then another drink. Okay. That's definitely where I knew I was blacking out because, you know, nothing I did or said after a certain period of time I could recall the next day. So you went from being a social drinker and being around other people even while you were getting drunk to being an isolated drinker, drinking by yourself, and that started to occur the year before you actually got sober? I would say yes. I mean, I'd give it about a year, maybe a little bit longer, mm. but not once I hit that slippery slope. I was I was in it. That kind of bottom is more like a crash. You know, sometimes I think about the difference between a slow decline to the bottom and a rapid crash. And within my own mind, I can't really determine which of those is worse because one does get you to the program much more quickly, but it can be much, much more severe. The other one is slow and steady decline, and that's bad enough, and you don't know where to get off the elevator. But you can get off the elevator sooner than absolute bottom. So you hit bottom uh, the year before you got sober. What did you feel like you needed to do once you realized you had a problem? There was no one particular precipitating event, but it was a growing dis-ease, a growing discomfort, a growing dissatisfaction, and kind of a little mm-hmm. bit of a, of a Peggy Lee moment, sort of like, this can't be all there is. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I've been sure. celebrating this retirement right. and this phase of life, but... How could this be so miserable? This isn't what I was expecting. And, you know, there's no amount Mm -hmm. of of vodka that's making this any better or any, you know, any other substance. But it's odd how it just came, really came down to vodka. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just this growing uh, feeling of despair and and misery. I had made a mental note. I heard someone, a friend, say that, oh, so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Uh, has started going to AA. Uh, she's not drinking anymore. And I hmm. thought, well, that's interesting because mm-hmm. I hadn't seen so-and-so in a while. And I thought, huh, okay. And I kind of put mm-hmm. that information kind of in my back pocket. I was aware at the time, if I ever decide mm-hmm. sure. that there's something I need to do about this, if this is really an issue, then I'm calling so-and-so. And that's what I did ultimately. Huh? Did you know anything about AA previously? Only generally. I didn't know. What you see in the media and that sort of thing? Yeah, that kind of thing. But, you know, no specifics. No. So tell me about your first days in AA, your first meeting, what it was like early on when you finally made the decision to stop drinking and you went to AA in earnest. It was life changing just from the very beginning, walking into the room. It was it was a little frightening. Hmm. But once I got in there, I could certainly feel the compassion the concern and the love. Mm-hmm. And that was a little overwhelming mm-hmm. sure. um, and disconcerting. And yeah. yet, you yeah. know, I'm definitely one of those people who did not love myself. And so to be able to be surrounded by all of that was so very comforting. There was also, mm-hmm. though, a part of it where it kind of felt like I was trying to drink from that, that fire hydrant. There was so much, it felt like so much coming at me all at one time. You know, the 12 this and the mm-hmm. 36 that and the big book and the it, it was, okay, let me just sort this all out. Um, you know, but that was the, the mind piece, just yeah. trying to kind of logically sort through some things. But I was, fortunately, I was getting it on other levels, too. You were. Mm-hmm. And I was loving it. Mm-hmm. And I just knew that, wow, I don't know why it's taken me as long to, to find these rooms, but here I am. And this is certainly where I belong. So you got to AA, you felt good about being there, but were there any aspects of the program that you saw within your early days that were attractive, and were there some that actually were a little bit repulsive to you? It took me a little while to sort out the difference between how we view or that we don't really view or have an opinion on religion and that it is a a spiritual program. Uh So, you know, making that distinction Uh 
was important to me, and I was I was so grateful that uh, that we weren't a religious program. There was someone who had told me, as a matter of fact, that I heard years ago. This is the little bit of information yeah. I had about AA, and it was wrong, mm-hmm. which was that yeah. oh, it's a religious program. Right. And I, I think that had I had thought, oh no, oh. how could that be? And then once mm-hmm. I got in and began having my own experience, I thought, well, that person might have thought it was religious for her, but it's it's not a religious program at all. You know, some of our expressions, mm-hmm. uh, at first I thought, oh, well, that's just so trite, and that's just not, you know, that's not for me. Right. But, you know, it is. It's not easy, but it's a simple program. Right. You know, it's interesting. My first meetings, whenever they would read the preamble, it was pretty clear that it wasn't a religious program, but I couldn't help from looking up at the steps on the wall and seeing God in those steps. And in my mind, God and religion were on the same plane and that if I didn't accept one, I couldn't possibly accept the other. Separation of religion from God was a big turning point for me. Did you have that kind of experience? I'm still working through that experience. I'm still, yeah, I'm still coming uh-huh. to, to an awareness and to more of a clarity of how I feel about those issues. Mm-hmm. I'm very mm-hmm. accepting of the concept of a higher power. I get sure. that. Uh, but I'm still reconciling my uh, Louisiana community Catholicism, um, such as it was, uh, with my mm-hmm. science background and, you know, my feeling like mm-hmm. I'm hidebound mm-hmm. to the facts. So it's, yeah. that's kind of a part of my journey. I get that. Well, that's, that's an interesting journey to be on, too. And it certainly helps to be in a program that's so open and egalitarian, let's say, to allow people to have differences in the way they think about things. Did you get a sponsor early on, and what was it like working the steps? My home group is a women's group, and when I walked into that room, uh, there were two people there. I tend to be Mm -hmm. a little early to meetings, and uh, so Mm -hmm. uh, there Mm -hmm. were two people, and one of those people became my sponsor. But it took Mm. me... I didn't choose her that day. Uh, it, it took a while to get to that right. point, but she sat herself next to me, um, gave me, you know, some information and, uh, and, and nudged me on. So a few weeks, uh, into going, uh, regularly, I then asked her to be my sponsor. Mm-hmm. And yes, mm-hmm. we worked the steps. Didn't take long. Once I began reading the big book and, you know, I, I kind of did what a, a lot of, um, us lawyers do, mm-hmm. you know, I sat there with a highlighter <laughs> and a, you know, underlined and, you know, did uh-huh. all that kind of stuff and sure. uh, really got into it. And I was uh-huh. ready for my fourth step much sooner than my, my sponsor expected me to be, but I was ready to get on with it. I really took to it. Mm-hmm. Were you able to get to all the things you needed to get to in your fourth step and your first fourth step? Um, I, I did what I needed to do. I did grapple a little bit with that thing of, well, this has to just be perfect. And, you know, I've got to have parchment and a quill pen and whatever else I thought I had to have. But I was working yeah. it and processing it, you know, in real time and just thinking, no, well, this is mm. ridiculous. Just sit down and start writing. And what was your fifth step like? Did you do that immediately? Pretty soon. Yeah, pretty soon really? after. When yeah. you got to the sixth, seventh, eighth and ninth step, what did those look like and feel like to you at the time? Six and seven, we didn't really do at the time. Um, I, I was sort of mm-hmm. left kind of wondering, what, what is that all about? And I think my, my mm, sponsor yeah. wanted me to have the time to learn a little more about the program. And and, and it was almost mm-hmm. as though we sort of came back to that. And um, she encouraged me. I guess somewhere in there I had found Drop the Rock in the meantime. I love that book. And I learned much more mm-hmm. through Drop the Rock about uh, about six and, and seven. What were your eighth and ninth steps like? Actually, more of my amends have been, you know, living amends. I I didn't, you know, both of my parents are deceased. With their alcoholism and, and they had health problems, my parents died in their 60s, Howard. So, oh, uh, yeah, both That's of them. Bad. I've outlived my father and almost outlived my mom. So um, I didn't have them as living people. I had worked through in therapy much at a much younger age, uh, working, mm-hmm. writing some mm-hmm. things out, um, you know, to deal with issues with my parents. Um, and so sure. it's more about the change in my behavior. And, uh, and that's, yeah. you know, that's what I focus on 
uh, every day. You really can't understate the importance of doing a, a good living amend, just being a better person as a result of working working the steps of the program. At what point did you start sponsoring other people? Were you involved in sponsorship or service work? I've plunged into service work, but interestingly enough, it's not included so much sponsoring. I've not sponsored that many people. My service uh-huh. instead, in, in, maybe in addition to any of the, the sponsoring I've done, is to uh, is to reach out to, to many of the older members of, uh, of our group uh, and to be there for them. I've realized that, you know, one of my purposes now in the program mm-hmm. where alcohol had been, I try to fill, fill that with being of service, with, with volunteering. Um, some of it's AA related, some of it's not, but it, but it certainly helps my program. Yeah, I get that. So over the last five years, how would you rate uh, your program? Not so much objectively, but subjectively. What would you say your last five years look like in your life versus the preceding years? If we if we had a graph, I think the the preceding years would be sort of going that downward, you know, that precipitous. Sure. In fact, as I learn more, maybe even a sharper decline. And then sure. in the last five years, it's just been a slow, well, maybe not even so slow, but it certainly has been an, an upturn. I'm 66 now. I'll be 67 soon. And... You know, I certainly, mm-hmm. I certainly put myself into learning as much as I could in many aspects of my life. But now, learning mm-hmm. on these deeper levels, uh, you know, it's taken the program's taken me to places that I didn't even know existed, and I, it's as though I got my life back and and more. Mm-hmm. That's a real statement of gratitude that you just made about getting your life back. During the past five years, have there been times when you felt like drinking or where your sobriety was in jeopardy? Very seldom. There, you know, sort of that romancing the drink every now and then um, has come back, Mm -hmm. but not strong enough Mm -hmm. to do anything. I, I remember being on a trip once and I had told friends, and I don't do this, I don't even put myself in a bar type of environment very often, but there were limitations on this trip. And so I told this group of friends, I'll Mm -hmm. meet you at this bar at a certain time. And I did. And I saw a martini go by and I thought, oh, Mm -hmm. wow. And I, I just, I watched it go all the way from the bar to whoever was having the drink and, uh, the, the, the server was delivering it. And I thought, ooh. And I got out of there quickly. And that that mm, one memory mm. stays with me. But aside from that, really, that desire to drink was lifted so early on in my program. And I'm still I still consider that just a, a, a miracle. Would you say there's a pretty strong correlation between being able to recognize that and staying in the center of the program or staying engaged in the program? I think that our spiritual condition, I think that our and our emotional sobriety, uh, in addition to our physical sobriety, uh-huh. uh, it, it's everything. Have there over the last five years been any particularly difficult occurrences in your life that you could look back on and say, thank God I'm sober, thank God I'm an AA? Uh, one that stands out in particular is uh, at this point, you know, when I was growing up, my mom was kind of the primary alcoholic. Now my older sister, who yeah. used to be my protector when in Buffer and when dealing with our mom, now my mm-hmm. sister has emerged as the mm-hmm. primary alcoholic. And it, and so we, she was hospitalized mm-hmm. about three mm-hmm. years ago and we, we were told she wasn't mm-hmm. going to make it then. Oh my. That episode was very difficult and I, I stayed with her in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I wrote her obituary when I was told that she wasn't going to make it. And, mm-hmm. and just the lessons coming out of that, mm-hmm. real, realizing that, you know, the need to distance myself and realizing that my work on my sobriety is just that. It's just about my sobriety, that her path is her path. Um, and uh, as painful as mm-hmm. that is, but to, yeah. to acknowledge and to appreciate the difference there. Yeah. And that's so important to, to see it and know it and feel it. When I've encountered those tough times, whether it be the death of both of my parents and other tough times, I found that the program, the people, what I've put into 
the program to that point comes back to me in the form of a terrific amount of support and a terrific amount of love and an overwhelming feeling that I'm protected by virtue of being in AA. Did you ever have that feeling? Oh, absolutely. Uh, almost every mm -hmm. meeting I attend, I feel that warmth. Mm, I feel like great. I've come to a very nurturing place. There's a, a meeting I attended in the first year of my sobriety. There was a woman there who came. I think she had buried her husband either that day or the day before. And and someone, some, and I don't uh -huh. know whether he'd been in the program, I don't remember, but someone at the meeting said, oh, Anne, I'm just so glad you're here, and I'm surprised to see you, Or I'm, but I'm glad you're here. Her response was, where else mm -hmm. would I be? I mean, that just hmm. stayed with me, That's and I beautiful. thought, you know, this is... In some way, some kind of foreshadowing, um, you know, in, in, in my life with a loss or, or whatever mm -hmm. deep pain I'm in, that's yeah, where I would yeah. be for comforting, for support, for understanding. Hmm. Hmm. That's beautiful. That realization, when it comes, it, it's a really good feeling, isn't it? Mm hmm Very reassuring. It's like you get the keys of the kingdom at that point when you recognize that. Anything in the last five years in the way of really good things, like some terrific gifts that have happened that you could look at and say, thank God I was sober. There's not any one in particular other than the great gift of having an, the awareness of my mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. of just how yeah. precious it is. And I mm. take nothing mm -hmm. for granted. Just that simple yeah. awareness. I'm, Another thing is because of my circumstances growing up and feeling like in such a turbulent childhood, I always sort of saw myself as the mm -hmm. little soldier and the little, you know, the little adult in the room. Now I've found a playful yeah. side that I never could allow to play, to be. Um, and so it's like being able to have my childhood in a way uh, with a sense of frolic and joy and fun at this age. That's really marvelous to have that awakening to the childhood you should have enjoyed and had. Yeah, it's so great. It's like a gift that I wake up to every morning. Yeah, I feel that way about my days, too. I always the very first thing I do when I roll out of bed onto my knees in the morning is thank God for the gift of another day. And sometimes it's hard to identify material gifts, but the spiritual gifts are there every single moment of every single day for me. I just have to be aware of them. Yeah, the gift is in that awareness, to be awake. Yeah. 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 Well, Tesca, you know, this has been just a marvelous time to get to know you during this interview. You and I have seen each other in meetings, and I've heard you share a number of times, but being able to sit down and get the rest of the story is so important. And I know things that you've said today are going to be received in a way that might be life-changing for some people out there who hear it. And I'd like to thank you for doing this. I love you. You're a terrific model of contented sobriety. Thank you so much for those kind words. Thank you for asking me to be in this interview. And, oh, yeah. you know, I, I said this one day a while back, and I, I'll say it again. I mean, every every time you say to us, you know, if no one's told you yet today that I love you, I love you, that really touches me so deeply. And I, I feel that. And I, I feel mm -hmm. your sincerity. And I appreciate mm -hmm. that very much. And I, I love you, too. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tesca. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Tesca M. for sharing her story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Show them how to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. If you really liked it, I'd be most grateful if you can give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. And please join the AA Recovery Interviews Facebook group, where our fellowship gathers online. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.